together, shall we? Well, Father God, we thank you so much for this time together, Lord. I thank you so much um, for this opportunity to preach your word again. Lord, as we come to this Corinthians passage, it's an interesting passage. It's a passage that's really not preached on much. I don't think I've ever heard it preached on in my life, um, Father. And it's a passage that we don't get to look at, and yet it's in, it's in the lectionary, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the chance to look at this passage. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to it. Lord, these passages are all in Scripture for a reason. There's nothing in Scripture that shouldn't be there. And yet, these passages that are seemingly obscure to us, we just kind of brush over. We don't think about them. Why are they there? Why do you write them? Why do you put these things in Scripture that we don't think we need? They're there for a reason. So help us to contemplate it today. Help us to think about it, dwell on it, meditate on it. Open our hearts and minds to what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this passage. I think I put it up on script. Uh, it should be up there, I hope. Um, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such thing as water. If I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. You have desires in your heart that the earth cannot satisfy. We all have this longing for the eternal life. We all have this longing for something that is not here. We know that we were made for something more than this. And it's a thing that all Christians believe. Now, if you listen to secularists, they'll try to tell you that this is a ridiculous, superstitious belief, and we've grown beyond this. I've listened to them talk about this. The problem with this belief for Christians is that it takes faith to believe it, and so many people try to dismiss it. We get the first taste of this eternal life when we come to Jesus. When the Holy Spirit enters within us, that's called the earnest or the foretaste of heaven. When you were going to buy land in California and you were on the East Coast, sometimes they would give you a bag of that land called the earnest of the land. You actually own some property, but you weren't there yet. It's called the earnest. You had something, something tangible that was there. The Holy Spirit, when we come to Christ, is the earnest or the foretaste of heaven. The Holy Spirit, Gerhardus Voss, one of my favorite authors, he's pretty deep, writes, is the foretaste of heaven. It's the atmosphere, he writes, that the Christian believes. When we take communion, that's part of what we're doing as Anglicans. It's communion with Christ in the heavenlies. That's where Rome gets it wrong. They say, we're re-sacrificing Jesus. No, We're joining with Christ as he is in heaven, and we're joining with other believers, and that's why we take it, right? That's why those of you watching on television, if you haven't taken communion in a while, you are in sin. You heard me. Come take it. We join with other believers, and we join with Christ in the heavenlies. 
that's what we do. Right? Communion is very critical to our faith. That's why the Lord's table is up here. And even as an evangelical, we believe that. That's why we're Anglicans. It's a powerful thing. Well, this faith is pretty special to us, but when the cares and the temptations of the world creep in, faith can get pretty blurry, can it? It can get pretty messy. All of us have had this experience in our lives. And it gets worse when the tide of persecution sets in. And at that point, the rubber meets the road, and believers really have to decide what they think. It's easy to believe when there is no persecution and when you lived in Christian land. And in the South, y'all have lived in Christian land. I didn't live in Christian land. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area where Christians were few. I grew up being mocked for my faith. Went to Virginia Tech with professors who openly mocked me as a Christian. I grew up in Fairfax County where I was mocked as a Christian. My first job, they mocked me as a Christian every day. I was mocked constantly for being a Christian. That's the way it was. I was in a very progressive area, and so I understood what it was like. And then I've come down here, and it was Christian land. It was a very different environment. But here, when persecution sets, or anywhere, you really have to decide who you're going to follow, the world or Jesus. And that's the question circling this passage this morning, though it may not seem it at first. So the seventh chapter of Corinthians, and let's dive in with that. Hopefully you've got your Bibles. You can follow online or up here if you want. Please bring your Bibles. It's usually preached for its statements on marriage. However, our BCP, Book of Common Prayer, and its lectionary has us looking at this passage this morning, and I'm thankful for that. It's right in the middle of these passages on marriage. And when you first glance at it, it's not a passage that we usually look at. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 to 20. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned him, and to which God has called him. And this is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Have you all thought about that? At the time of your call, were you already circumcised? This is a passage that we all need to meditate on, right? I mean, this is not something... What? What are you preaching on, Jeff? Let him not seek to remove the marks of his circumcision. Now, meditate on that passage for a second. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. So this is hardly a popular topic in churches to preach on. If you're going to go to most churches in town, you're going to hear five points to a better me, three points to a better marriage, two points to a better way to mow your lawn, or whatever. And then by the end of the year, you'll have 150 points to a better whatever. And then lots of churches then will also preach on the gospel, and that's a good thing. But we don't, we kind of stick to other passages. And I learned early on, I would kind of skip some things saying my folks don't need to learn this and my folks don't need to learn that. We really need to f- focus on this. But inevitably, whenever I would pass over a passage thinking if my folks don't need to learn about X, that week in my office, usually on Tuesday, right when I got back, somebody would be there struggling with the very thing that I passed up because it was the Lord telling me, Jeff, which part of my word that I wrote do you think is irrelevant? You see... Somehow, this Bible that he writes, God's communication to us, he seems to think is important. And so this passage must be 
important. We, we kind of think it's yucky. During a, during a sermon on Christmas Eve, I, I mentioned something that was kind of unfortunate to folks, I guess. I, I mentioned something that had a, a, a couple walk out and leave and then kind of yell at the crew back there as if they had anything to do with the sermon. I was talking about the angels visiting, if you remember, during Christmas Eve, and I talked about some dreaded things. I talked about uh, pregnancy, and I talked about babies because I talked about the announcements of the angels, and the one particular announcement of the angel to Joseph had to do with, well, they were worried about an affair, and I talked about the dreaded S word. I mentioned the S word. You know what the S word is. It's how babies get here. X. But the Bible mentions sex. And that was too much. I should have preached on Santa Claus. And so somebody got up and left. And that's kind of how we Christians are sometimes. <clears throat> we Christians, when we come to church, and I've had this from time to time, and some of the sermons I've preached in other churches, believe me, oh, that shocked people. <clears throat> but I kind of preach straight on what the Scripture says. And I've learned that a long time ago. And sometimes we Christians within these walls, we think, man, this Bible, we can't really engage it as we should. We need to pass the, over these passages, and we need to protect our precious little ears, and we need to protect the precious little ears of those around us, because Lord have mercy, what if the preacher says something embarrassing? I don't want to have to explain it to my kids, but I'm telling you this, your kids outside these walls are hearing things far worse than what I preach. They're going to hear it out there. Christian, you've got to be able to engage the culture as it is because God engages them as they are. And in Scripture, it talks bluntly. The Lord says in a prophecy that Israel is like a whore lifting her skirt and running behind every tree. That is God's word, not mine. That's a direct prophecy. How does God speak? We have this impression of how the Lord speaks that is not how the Lord speaks. He is blunt. He understands. We don't like it. We live in a culture that has cleaned up fairy tales. Did you, have you ever read Grimm's fairy tales? They are brutal. They are brutal. And they were meant to be read to children with their parents there. And they've learned from psychology that when you read these brutal stories and mom and dad are there, <laughs> the kids learn about the brutality of life and they learn in their parents' arms that they can still be safe, but the world is brutal. But we have made them into Disney fairy tales. Snow White doesn't end the same way. It's a very different story. Because we sugarcoat everything. Death doesn't really happen. It happens in hospitals. <laughs> I go to ICU and death happens. I see moms whose babies died. Death happens. I've baptized those dead babies. It happens. We push it out. The Bible speaks truth, and it speaks to us where they are. The Bible is pretty blunt. It's a real word message, and that's what this is. It turns out that God knows who we are, and he's not really concerned with our sensibilities. He's concerned with reaching us and teaching us. Are you concerned with reaching the world and teaching them? Are you concerned with reaching people where they are? Or are you concerned about your precious little ears, Christian? 
And here the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Corinthians and by extension to us about what kind of people we are called to be in Jesus. And now he writes the opening to our passage at the end of a section on marriage, which is also pretty blunt about marriage because he is talking about the S word. I'm not going to talk about that. Don't worry, parents. But he is talking about that. And at the end of this passage, he writes, or in the middle of this, about circumcision. And he writes about hiding the marks of circumcision and not. And really what that passage is about, I'm not going to get too much into that, is people would, they would take baths, they would go to these Roman baths and everybody would be buck naked. And they'd also do sports buck naked. And if you were Jewish, you would be circumcised. And that's pretty obvious, guys, if you're circumcised or not. And then the Romans would make fun of that right? Because nobody else was circumcised. Now, circumcision in the U.S. is a very different thing. We've tied this to a religious thing, and Christians should be because you think that it's a religious thing, but it's really not. In the United States, circumcision came about because of the military, somewhere around World War I, maybe earlier, because of infections. If you were in foxholes, it was very difficult to stay clean, and a lot of infections happened, and so the military started circumcising to make sure that didn't happen. Now, circumcision in the Jewish faith was a sign of entrance into the covenant. Males were circumcised, right, on the eighth day. You were circumcised to be brought into the covenant. This is what the Lord demanded, right? Now, Abraham had to think when he first heard that message, I, what? Noah got a rainbow. I got a what? God, let's negotiate. But that's what happened. He got this. There's some other funny stories about this. I'll preach those on another day. But Jews then would try to reverse this through a lot of different procedures. We won't talk about that. So they wouldn't be noticed. And Paul says, if you're circumcised, don't worry about it. If you're uncircumcised, don't try to fix it. Live as you are. And that's what Paul is talking about in this particular passage. Now, a lot of people think that all these passages in Romans 7 are disconnected. That's a mistake. These passages in Romans, and first, sorry, 1 Corinthians 7 are all connected. They are all connected. They all have to do with each other. But how are they connected? 1 Corinthians 7.38 says this. And this is why it's kind of interesting. You see, these disconnected sections uh, get discombobulated and people begin to start to use them to try to prove different things. For instance, Romans 7.38, Rome tries to prove this as saying that our priests should be single because singleness is the highest value in all of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 7.38, So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Right? And so they begin to use and pull apart this passage and teach things that aren't taught. This is a mistake too, right? If you're called to be single, this passage is showing that singleness is indeed a calling. It is a calling, and it is a blessed calling. And if you are called to be single, you have been called to a worthy calling. If you are called to single, if you are a single person and you have been called to this lifestyle, you do have a calling. But this calling is for a specific purpose. You are called to use that singleness for even more service to the Lord. And you need to pray to what that service is. You're not encumbered with the family, but the Lord didn't give you that blessing to watch more television, to read more romance novels, right? To chill out more. He gave you that blessing because he expects you to be doing more for the kingdom of God. 
That's why that blessing is given. Now, nowhere else in Scripture is that blessing called greater than marriage. See, Rome and the East sometimes say, well, oh, this blessing is the best blessing. And so they developed this whole theology that clergy shouldn't be married, bishops shouldn't be married. And then they began to develop this teaching that women were inferior and that women were icky because they tempted us to this stuff and this was a bad thing. But all throughout Scripture, from the beginning to the end, marriage is a blessing, children are a blessing, women are a blessing. There is nowhere in Scripture where women are lesser than men. Zero places. That is a lie. And there are zero places where being single elsewhere than this passage, where being single is better than being married. In fact, everywhere else, married is in, marriage is encouraged. So this passage can't mean that. Right? When the rest of Scripture says something else, that's not what it means. Singleness is indeed a blessing. It's a calling, is what I should say. But it's a calling for a specific purpose. So what does this passage mean? See, if you read it discombobulated, if you cut these pieces out, then you miss what the whole teaching is. Rather, what Paul is pointing out through this passage is this. 1 Corinthians 7.20 Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called, and the reason, he states, is in 1 Corinthians 7.26 I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. In 1 Corinthians 7.28c to 32a, Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away, I want you to be free from anxiety. So if you read that specifically, that's a monastic passage. We should all be monks and nuns. That can't be what it means, because elsewhere he never says that. So either Paul is contemplating on the end of the world coming, or Paul is contemplating about what? There's a severe persecution, and we need to live as we are. Something is happening in this culture right now. There's a persecution that's happening and we need to be worried about what is happening right now. If you're single, live as a single person. If you're married, live as a married person. If you're a slave, live as a slave. If you're not, do what you are. If you can gain your freedom, Paul says, do that. But don't worry about everything else. We've got to survive this persecution. If you're a married person, you've got to worry about much more during a persecution than if you're single. And that's what Paul is basically saying. It's probably a persecution at a very high level. Not having a spouse to worry about during a persecution is awesome. Look, if I'm, persecutions come in different forms. They can kill you, or they can take away your job. That's what happened in Rome. They could take away all your property. If I don't have a wife and that happens, I can move. If I have wife and little ones, or if I have a husband and little ones, and that happens, I've now got to worry about how to feed and take care of all of them. It's much more stressful. If I'm single, I don't have to worry about any of that. You understand? If I'm a slave and I can gain my freedom, he says, by all means, gain your freedom. But if you can't gain your freedom, don't worry about that right now. Live as you are. We've got to survive. 
We've got to get through. We've got to support each other. That's what he's saying. And Paul says in our, in our section, though, if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, don't change that either. Now, this part's a little bit different, though. I'm not sure that everybody was jonesing to be circumcised or uncircumcised, right? I'm not sure that that part had to do as much with persecution. People weren't actually in a rush to get themselves to do this, right? But there is a controlling portion for the entire passage because this comes right in the middle. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. It's not the law of Moses that counts anymore, he says. Indeed, in Colossians, we read this, Colossians 2.11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, which is saying that receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior places us into union with God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're united with God so that the covenant of circumcision is completely useless. That's why we don't get circumcised anymore. These outward signs of Moses are completely useless. We are now sealed with Christ. You have a circumcision of the heart through Jesus Christ. You are circumcised in Jesus Christ. That's what Colossians is saying. And so we don't need it. So his statement is this. Live for Jesus in this current situation and stop worrying about the things of the world during this persecution. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Now in our country, I'm going to say, we're increasingly facing times of trials as believers. <clears throat> our government is taking stronger and stronger stances against the gospel. And if you haven't seen that by this point of time, you're willfully blind. With the rise of a new Congress and a new president, you know, I don't get political, folks, but I'm saying it in this fashion. We've seen the start of a push for an aggressive new gender-fluid agenda, and it's going to touch everyone in our schools, in federal and likely state gover and government positions. I'm already hearing it from people on post. But this is nothing new. It's just a continuation of what's been going on for the last few decades. I saw it when I was coming up in school. I'm seeing it even more now. And it's in full flower now. And you need to understand that this isn't just the transition between of men wanting to be women and women wanting to be men. It's an aggressive agenda where there's 32 genders in New York. Uh, the last, the, 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 the Obama administration during their last three months, the Department of Justice and the Department of Education sent out to schools a document saying that there were 16 genders. And they encouraged kids, as young as first grade, to be able to pick their genders. And they enc were encouraging teachers to tell the kids to be able to do this and to hide it from their parents. They were beginning to encourage unisex bathrooms, unisex field trips when staying in the same um, rooms when they were on field trips. And they were encouraging unisex showers. This was the agenda that was coming, and this is the agenda that is now coming, but it's also been in many states. My friends in the D.C. area were already struggling with this. This is an agenda that's already out there, but it's being pushed more and more now. <coughs> we'll be taught new pronouns like <coughs> zim, zay, zer, vis, vers, tem. Some's already been put on the White House website, but in Congress, restrictions on usage of the terms mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, etc., as the progressive religion seeks to remake 
what it means to be human. And this progressive religion is in the Republican and the Democrat Party. I'm not worried about party here, but it is spreading everywhere. We've been protected somewhat in the South, but it is everywhere. Talk to your younger members. If you've not seen it, you will be seeing it soon. It will be in lots of places. And those who oppose these things will face penalties increasingly. Now, in New York City, you were fined if you didn't use the right pronoun. If you didn't use Zim or Zer or Zay, you could face a $150,000 fine in your businesses. That was a thing that was passed. This is just the tip of the iceberg, though. There's a strong effort to remove from hospital and medical personnel's ability to refuse to perform abortions based upon religious grounds. There's an attack upon religious freedom laws and freedom of religious conscience laws in many states. These warnings have been sounded loudly by the Supreme Court justices, by senators, by congressmen, by governors, by bishops, and our own archbishop. Progressivism is here, and the church is in the way. It must be removed for the progressive God to be worshipped as the one true God. And this means that we as Christians will have to make tough choices in the days ahead. Many are going to fall, and some of those are going to backslide and return. Many more will decide to fall away for good. And this is the way it's been in every persecution since persecutions first began. The wheat is separated from the chaff, but in every persecution after falling away, the church will eventually begin to grow again. The church shrinks and then it rebuilds as the wheat is left and toughens up and then begins to preach the gospel and bring in new and stronger believers. Paul's reminder in our passage is very, very strong. It's powerful. Remember this in the start of the storm, 1 Corinthians seven twenty-three to 24. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And so, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. He tells believers that they are not their own. You were bought with a price. When you came to salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells you now. And that means that we live differently. We don't live for political parties. We are in a politically charged society. Why? Because God has departed, and well, from most people. They no longer live for faith, and because faith is gone in most of our society, we are looking to political parties to fill that void. Politics has become God for so many people, right? And that's why when one president rises or another, or one party rises or another, we think that a new God has arisen. And both parties fail us. Why? Because they're p- people. Scripture says, do not put your trust in princes in whom there is no hope. When their spirit departs, their plans fail. That's what the psalmist says. We cannot do that. We put our trust in God. You were bought with a price. The Son of God came and died for you. And we need to believe and we need to remember, and that's what Paul is saying. Do not put your trust and do not give away what is eternal for that which is finite. Do not sacrifice your eternal life for slavery to men. Do not sacrifice the hope that has been given and bought with the price for fleeting, finite service. We have to stand for the gospel no matter what. You cannot bend the knee to whatever society pushes. It will always be pushing things against the gospel. Every culture has faced it. Every culture in this world. No matter what age in the United States, we have always faced it. 
10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, there's never been a time in this country or any country where you've not had to stand up for the gospel. There were no great days in that sense. We always look back and think there were good old days. There weren't. There were always days where you had to stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and our day is no different. Even though we are facing a culture that is getting increasingly hostile towards the church and the gospel. And if you don't believe me, just listen to what they're saying about the church out there. It just is. And we need to learn, and we need to be prepared in this day and age. Amen.